0: All right, so coronary artery disease. Um, coronary artery disease stems from another disease called atherosclerosis. So we've got to talk very briefly about atherosclerosis. Um, atherosclerosis, hardening of the arteries because of an atheroma, which is a fatty growth in the artery. Now... In the podcast, I think I give you a bunch of detail about um, the different hypotheses of how of how we get atherosclerosis in the first place. And back in the fifties, they thought that you whatever you ate, fat wise, the fat got deposited in your arteries, and that was the atherosclerosis. That was completely wrong. So they said, "Oh, it's not the fat that you eat; it's the cholesterol that you eat. The cholesterol gets deposited on your arteries, and that." Is what causes heart attacks and heart disease, and then they said, "Oh no, no, that's not," because if you look at the artery. So what they did was they did they did um, experiments in rabbits. Now, do, do plants produce cholesterol? No. So, would a rabbit normally eat cholesterol? No unless it's the most vicious rabbit from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. That one eats, eats cholesterol, but normal bunny rabbits eat zero cholesterol. Now, if you force feed a rabbit cholesterol, it has no way to get rid of the cholesterol. It, it doesn't know what to do with it. So over time, what happens is the cholesterol builds up on the inside of its arteries, and it looks a lot like an atherosclerosis, an atheroma but it's not an atheroma on the other hand, in humans what happens is over time the atheroma builds up but it's actually underneath the inner lining of, of the artery, what's that inner lining called? the endothelium or the tunica intima or the tunica interna Whatever name you want to remember, endothelium is what I usually call it. So this is a a cholesterol deposit from force feeding an animal that can't get rid of it. This is an atheroma. They look similar, but they are not the same. So there's another thing that was missing, and that thing that was missing was inflammation. So this atheroma can't occur unless there's inflammation. And then the inflammation can't continue unless there's endothelial damage. So now we have two additional pieces of information about coronary artery disease that we didn't have back then. So in order to get coronary artery disease, we have to have inflammation and endothelial damage. Because where does, where does the atheroma occur? Underneath. The- Underneath. All right, so you've got to know the steps of atherosclerosis development. The very, very first one, the very, very first step is you draw your little artery and you put your little dotted line for your endothelium and then you're gonna put a whole bunch of little circles in the bloodstream. And some of those circles are gonna go underneath the endothelium. And those are gonna be your LDL cholesterol. The, Bad cholesterol, LDL, goes underneath and back into the blood, underneath the endothelium and then back into the lumen, the bloodstream, all the time without ever causing any problems. Have have any of you ever ridden a bike? You know, you're supposed to ride on the little bike lane. Have you ever taken your bike and gone up to the sidewalk and then back down onto the bike lane? You're not supposed to do that, are you? Technically, but you can do it just fine, right? until one day some idiot walks in front of you and you smack him, pow, and you crash your bicycle and you get hurt, right? Okay, right? Well, that's what happens in in the beginning of atherosclerosis. Something happens, we don't know exactly what, but something happens that damages the LDL and it gets trapped underneath the endothelium. If the endothelium happens to be damaged, what's the body's response to injury? Inflammation. Inflammation. So if there happens to be inflammation in that same place as you have a trapped, damaged LDL, when the macrophages come to repair the area, they will eat this trapped LDL and they in turn will become trapped and they become what's called foam cells. I guess because they look... Foamy. I don't, I don't. ask me. They're full. Of, they're full of cholesterol, so they guess they look pudgy. Over time, the inflammation gets bigger and bigger, and that that those collection of foam cells grow into what's called a fatty streak. Now your body wants to protect itself from that growing fatty streak, so it will put a cap over the top of the lesion. It's called a fibrous cap. So it's like a sheath of, of um, collagen and other proteins that is designed to hold that thing in so that it can't escape. Over time, the foam cells in the middle begin to die and you just end up with a fatty, a fatty middle. A liquid, a liquid lipid core. Now, to make sure that, that um, to make sure that fibrous cap is strong, the very last step in the process is called calcification. You're going to calcify it, make it strong. So, step one: trap the LDL with inflammation. Step two: macrophage becomes foam cell. Step three fibrous cap step four calcification yeah well the first two aren't really steps they're just you know things that happen but step one trap the LDL step two foam cell step three fibrous cap step four calcification okay yes fatty streak okay fine fine. five five steps sure All right, um, now the reason you need to know about this is because this is what ultimately causes coronary artery disease. And there's two kinds of coronary artery disease. Kinds that kill you and kinds that inconvenience you. And you treat them similarly but different. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the kind that inconveniences you first. Um, Over time the atheroma gets bigger, and bigger, and bigger, and bigger, and bigger, until there's only a little space the blood can flow through. We call, as it grows bigger, it occludes the blood vessel. It blocks it off. Now, where do you start getting symptoms? Can you tell any difference between 0% occlusion, fully open, and 20% occlusion, where you blocked off 20% of the lumen? Nope. 30%. Nope. 40%. Nope. 50%. At 50%, depending on the location, you might begin to have symptoms. Some people don't have symptoms until they get up to 90% or more, though, depending on the location. And then, are they going to have symptoms all the time or just sometimes? Well, what do you think it starts out as, sometimes or all the time? Okay, so it's going to start out with sometimes. And what do you think the sometimes are? Okay, well, why exercise? Other way around. You're increasing. No, you said decrease. It's okay. Um, so during exercise, you increase the oxygen demand on the body, so the heart steps up to the plate, pumps stronger and faster, which increases its need for oxygen. So if the blood supplied to the heart, what supplies the blood to the heart again? The coronary artery. And I think I just swallowed that gnat. <laughs> hmm, seems to be gone. <laughs> I am the destroyer of gnats um, so, so, during, so during exercise you increase the, the heart's demand for oxygen as it increases its work so, so when we increase the load on the heart is when we're going to get symptoms because you can't increase the amount of blood that's going through enough because the artery is occluded. So what are some ways we can load the heart? You said exercise. What's another way? Well, that, any physical exertion is what, I mean, what we mean by exercise. It doesn't have to be, I'm going to work out, you know. Carrying groceries in can be considered exercise. Going upstairs to get to your car can be considered exercise. Any physical exertion. So besides physical exertion, what else can increase the load on the heart? Okay, stress, all right. In particular, what what kind of stress? What gets you really worked up? Ah, yes. Anger. Any emotion, any physical stress seeing those blue lights come on in the car behind you? So any emotional state that causes epinephrine and and, um, norepinephrine release will also cause increased uh, load on the heart. Got it? So the patient is going to have an increased load. And what happens after that? It increases the oxygen demand, but not the supply. So there's an imbalance, and what do we say happens to the legs when that happens? Intermittent claudication. claudication. And in the heart, we get angina or angina. Now here's the rule. If it happens when you're upset or when you're exercising, but you were okay beforehand, we call it stable. If it goes away when you calm down, it's considered stable. Stable. If it goes away with the nitroglycerin, it's considered stable. How many nitroglycerin can you give? Three. So, patient has up to three tries with nitroglycerin before it's more it's something else. So, the criteria for stable angina. What was the patient before the pain came on? Normal. They started to get upset or they started to physically exert themselves. When they did that, what happened? They got the pain. If they calm down or if they take nitroglycerin, what happens to the pain? Goes away. That's called stable angina. Now, what I would like for you to do is I would like for you to say stable plaque, and then a little arrow, stable angina. Now, what happens if the pain doesn't go away? The patient rests, or the patient takes three up to three nitroglycerin, and the pain doesn't go away. Then what do we call it? Unstable Unstable angina. So if the pain doesn't go away, we get unstable angina. Now, next to unstable angina, you put... Medical emergency or underneath it. Medical emergency. You're going to treat it like a heart attack. Now, what causes unstable angina? Unstable plaque. You're so smart. What is an unstable plaque? All right, so we have a plaque. No matter how big it is, it could be the tiniest plaque in the world as long as it's there. If it breaks open, what's in the middle? A liquid lipid core, right? So what happens to that liquid lipid core when the fibrous cap breaks open? It leaks out into the lumen of the artery and it sets off a cascade. What kind of cascade? Um, the clotting cascade. And before we can have the clotting cascade do its job, something else has to do something first. We have to have it hold hands. The P things. Platelets. So with unstable angina, what causes unstable angina? Unstable plaque. The unstable plaque breaks open and causes platelets to hold hands platelet aggregation and then the clotting cascade activates and stabilizes the plaque what's happening to our patients in terms of symptoms say again well pain chest pain Alright, so they've got beta withhane. And it doesn't go away with nitroglycerin or it doesn't go away when they rest. Or it occurs while they're resting. So well we're not going that far yet. Just you yeah, know, the definitions first. Now, has any damage been done to the to the heart at this point? No, nope, not necessarily. Now what well, if your heart If your heart is getting low on blood flow, or at least part of your heart is getting low on blood flow, um, how do you think your heart wants to respond to that? No, how does your heart want to do? It's not getting enough. Let's say that your job is to push a car, and someone tells you to hold your breath and not breathe while you're doing that. What are you going to do? you're going to slow down you're like I'm too tired I can't do it so your heart at least the portion that's affected by this by this occlusion by the unstable plaque is going to start to say I can't do it right so it's going to slow down and not contract as much now what does the body say about that I don't care if you're calling in sick you're going to work gosh darn it and it's going to tell work. How? Yes, but how? Sympathetic response. The sympathetic response is going to make it go faster and stronger. And what's that going to do to blood, to oxygen demand? It's going to make it go up. So now this part of the heart that's affected by the clot is having to work harder and it has even less blood flow than before. Can that damage the heart? Yes. Now, what's the determinant, what's the determining factor of whether the patient doesn't has a heart attack or doesn't have a heart attack? Okay, well, if the cells die, it's a myocardial infarction. If they don't die, then it's just unstable angina. But what's the determining difference? I mean, what what determines whether they do or don't die? No. No. What physiologically determines it? It's how big this clot is, plus something else about the clot. What do we say happens to a clot the moment it forms? It begins to break down. So it matters how long the clot lasts. which is one of the reasons why when someone has chest pain and you suspect a heart attack, a lot of times they'll tell you you should just give them an aspirin, even if you don't know. Because if it's unstable angina because of an unstable plaque, it could turn into a heart attack. And by giving them an aspirin early, what are you inhibiting? You're not just clotting, but you're inhibiting the platelets from holding hands, which stops the whole clotting cascade. So it slows down the clot formation, which could give their body enough chance to get rid of it and never have any damage at all. If a person has a heart attack, what's the best way to completely reverse the damage? Completely destroy the clot. A thrombolytic, tenecteplase or streptokinase. What's the danger doing that? They could bleed to death. So, you know, you have to weigh that. But the bottom line is stable angina versus unstable angina. You've got to know the differences between them. All right. Um, now that we've talked about the differences, let's go back and just, how do you treat stable angina in general? We've already talked about the nitroglycerin. What do you do before you give them the nitroglycerin sublingually? Check the blood pressure. Put the thing under their tongue. Does it tingle? Yes. Okay, it's working. How long do you wait before you reassess? Five minutes. minutes. Patient's still in pain. What do you do? Take the blood pressure again. If the blood pressure's still okay, give the nitroglycerin again. Wait five minutes. Reassess the pain. All right, if they're still in pain, can you give the nitroglycerin again? What do you got to do before you do that? Check the blood pressure. Blood pressure's okay, give it to him again. If the third time it's still not enough, then what do we do? We consider it to be unstable angina and do whatever the protocol is. And the protocol that I'm familiar with is you give him two milligrams of morphine, order an ECG, call the doctor. So Say again? Once you've called the doctor. No, just no. I'm just saying the this protocol. Like if you if this is happening in the hospital, is the only time you would be able to do this. You know, if you have a patient, you know, if you have a friend who has this out in the give them the aspirin and, and t- take them to the emergency room. You no. Know. Why morphine? We'll get to that later. All right. Um All right. So, for stable angina, Nitroglycerin is the treatment of choice, sublingual nitroglycerin is the treatment of choice for an acute attack. Are there ways that we can prevent the angina altogether? Why, yes, there is. We can prevent the heart from overworking. How do we do that? Beta blockers. And what's causing the problem in the first place? Not enough. <laughs> Not enough blood flow, not enough oxygen supply. What can we do about that? Vasodilation, Vasodilation. and the drug of choice for that would be calcium channel blocker. Um, there is a third kind of angina called Prinzmetal angina or um, vasospastic angina, and with that, for whatever reason, the arteries just vasoconstrict; they like clamp up. And the treatment of choice for that is also calcium channel blocker. All right, that's easy. for Stable angina is easy. The thing you have to recognize is that it's stable. Repeat after me. The thing you have to recognize is that it's stable. All right, wonderful. Now, you can also do surgery on a patient to increase blood flow through that affected artery. Um, What do you think the uh, surgeries of choice are? Okay, one is a stent, so you're gonna put them in the cath, lag, cath lab, run the wire up through their, through their aorta, into the heart, or into the coronary artery, and blow up a balloon, and leave a little net behind that's supposed to hold it open. What's another surgery? Bypass surgery, or cabbage. coronary artery bypass graft. Um, the number of arteries that you fix is the number of ways that it's bypassed. So if you like two-way bypass, means there were two sites that they did the surgery on. All right, as far as, um, stable, uh, as, far as unstable angina, first thing we wanna know is, is it a heart attack or is it not a heart attack? How do we know the difference? say that again am i yes or no how do we know the difference okay i'm necrosis all right so my infarction is cell death necrosis but how do we know all right so when a heart cell break when a heart cell dies its stuff leaks out now what stuff do we measure what enzyme cardiac enzymes do we measure So we can do CK, creatinine kinase, MB for myocardial band, but it's really not that good a determinant. There's a better one. What What is calcium the key to when it comes to muscle? Troponin. And there's a special kind of troponin, two special kinds of troponin, that are pretty much only found in heart muscle. Troponin I and T depending on the hospital you you work at, you'll have one or the other. You typically don't measure them both. Um, I think, don't quote me on this, but I think they've been moving more towards I over the years. Um, And there's some some other newer enzymes that they also measure now, some some places, but I can never remember what they are. It's like newer and more experimental. All right, so we draw enzymes. If there's no enzymes... Does that mean the patient didn't have a heart attack? And we can all go home happy now? No? Why no? It's still a possibility? What do you have to do? Check him again! Check him again! Um, all right, so typically it's every four hours. Up to how many hours? Depends on the hospital, but it's usually 12 to 16 hours after the symptoms began. So, they'll want three to four sets of enzymes. Now, there's three possibilities with your enzymes. You have all negative. You have some negative, some positive, maybe all positive, but they're positive. And then you have what's called gray zone. Gray zone is, I don't know, maybe they did, maybe they did. This course, does not care about gray zone. Don't ask me what do we do if, because I don't know. It depends on the patient, depends on the doctor. All we're going to deal with is yes and no. So if all of them are negative, the patient has been considered ruled out for MI. The patient did not have a heart attack, and now what we want to do is we want to find out what caused it in the first place. And they're going to do one of two things. So if all the enzymes are no, we're going. the patient is ruled out, and then we are going to try and find out what caused it and what caused it. What two, what two things do we do for that? Either a stress test or an angiogram. You, can you do an angiogram before they're completely ruled out? not a problem you can do that and if they're having a heart attack during that by accident we didn't detect it before they can actually go in and do a stent at that time can you do a stress test before someone's ruled out only if you don't mind killing them if they really did have a heart attack you know people don't die just having heart attacks they die from having heart attacks and not resting because remember what does the what does the heart want to do when it's has when it's damaged like that? It wants to rest. What does the body want it to do? Work harder. And then if on top of that you add physical exertion, you make it even worse. So, anytime someone has unstable angina or myocardial infarction, what's the first thing you do? Stop moving around, please. Sit down, lie down. Don't move. Do not pass go. Do not climb up those stairs. Don't walk back to your apartment. Stay right where you are. Yeah, you gotta stop exerting yourself. Then we do whatever else we do. All right, um, so no stress test until they're ruled out under any circumstances ever. Got it? All right, if they're ruled in for a heart attack, then what do we do? All right, we're going to do the MI protocol. So sometimes people remember some of the drugs by MONA, which stands for morphine, oxygen, nitroglycerin, and aspirin. Now, aspirin happens to be fourth on there, but it's the first one you give, unless the patient already had nitroglycerin in their pocket and has been taking it all along, in which case you already gave them nitroglycerin. But in general, if you just have those orders, what's the first one you give? Aspirin. Okay, you need to know why each one. So aspirin, what does it do for the patient? Inhibits the clotting, which limits the damage to the, from the clot itself. Um, why would you give nitroglycerin? What do we say nitroglycerin did? Reduces the blank of the heart. Reduces the work of the heart. Making it require less oxygen. What does oxygen do? It gives it more oxygen. Duh. Also makes the patient feel calmer, which helps to reduce sympathetic response. And then morphine. What does morphine do? Right. Morphine does two things. One is it reduces pain. And why is that important? I mean, besides the patients in pain. Yeah. What's, the body's acute, what's the body's response to acute pain? Sympathetic response. And what do we say the problem in a heart attack is? Sympathetic response. So, so the morphine will help prevent that. And there's something else that's special to morphine. One of the reasons we use morphine is because it causes venous pooling, which helps to reduce cardiac um, preload, which in turn reduces contractility. It's the only opioid that I know of that does that. So it's kind of like a bonus. Yay, bonus! Bonus! Uh, it causes venous pooling which reduces end diastolic volume which reduces preload which reduces contractility through the Starling Law of the Heart which reduces myocardial demand for oxygen (sighs) just put morphine less preload (sighs) but wait there's more Do we have any other drugs that can help reduce um, the effects of the sympathetic response, especially in relation to the heart? Hmm. Yeah, what are they? Beta blockers, yes! So in addition to hemona, you also want to have a beta blocker. Um, they They have nurses whose main job is to follow every patient who's had a heart attack and make sure that they're on a beta blocker because doctors sometimes don't do their jobs and put them on a beta blocker. It's like, they call them case managers. And for the cardiac patients, it's like, what's your job? My job is to make sure that everyone's on a beta blocker. Okay, it's a little more than that, but it's, it's, a, it's a huge part of the job. Make sure that they're on all the drugs they should be on. All right. Now, when cardiac output goes down, we said sympathetic response happens, and what's the other thing that happens? renin and angiotensin, and aldosterone system. Do we have any drugs that can inhibit that? Yes. yes. Which ones? ACE inhibitors are the first one, ARBs second, and ACE inhibitors are the drugs of choice. Every, every patient who has a heart attack, if they're not allergic, should be on an ACE inhibitor. On a part, part of the what? Not collectively. There might be one or two, but I don't know for sure. And there's one more medication that they should be on. What caused the problem in the first place? An atherosclerosis plaque that did what? That broke open. So what we're going to do is we're going to put them on a statin. Because statins have been shown to increase plaque stability, which makes it less likely for another one to pop open. All right, now, you need to know all seven of those, yeah, all seven of those drugs, and you need to know why each one works the way it does. Now, in addition to that, there's some other drugs we can give, and you usually will give at least one of them. So if a patient has a heart attack, in addition to the aspirin, are there any other anticoagulant medications they might wanna be on? Okay, sometimes they'll be on Aspirin and Plavix, but let's think in the, in the venous side of things. Heparin or Lovenox. Almost always they're going to be on one or the other. Not always, but very, very frequently. And there's another class of medications that's also used in heart attack. What would that be? Okay, if, if the time to treatment is okay, maybe a thrombolytic, but there's something else. GP2B3A inhibitors Integrilin. So And those drugs The GP2B3A inhibitors Have enormously changed The way that we treat heart attacks They are so effective They are by far the best The most effective drugs we have At reducing the damage But there's some problems with them You know Risk of bleeding IV only You can't carry them in your pocket And take one when you feel chest pain Question? There. Nope. Nope. All right. I was just going to say, why why doesn't every patient get that? But is that the reason? That's one of the reasons. Not everyone is a good candidate for it. Um. All right. Last thing. About the heart attack itself. Um. In addition to enzymes, is there any other way we can tell someone is having a heart attack instead of just unstable angina? Maybe something that doesn't take twelve hours or sixteen hours. Why, yes, there is! Or so else I wouldn't ask the question. It's an ECG. Now, you want, I want you to write this down Q waves and ST elevation. Can we go over this once? No. I don't think we went over it in health assessment. It might be in the podcast, though the other podcasts. They used to call heart attacks Q wave MIs. And but now the new the new term is ST elevation MI or STEMI. And then they called the ones that didn't have that non-Q wave MIs, but now they call them N STEMIs. Non-ST elevation MIs. Um, You don't need to interpret them right now, but you need to know that terminology. Okay, so just very briefly, I'll show you on the board what it looks like. There's your normal one. Okay, a Q wave is when the Q portion is bigger. And ST elevation is when the ST segment is higher than usual. Okay, you're not going to have to interpret... That on on a test, not okay. Um, but you will need to know what they are, and then when you get to Med two, you'll actually have to maybe interpret that. But just knowing what it is will help you tremendously. Now, here's the problem with an ECG. What's the pro- well? What's the problem with an ECG? Half the patients who come in with a heart attack have normal ECGs. So when you take that ECG, if it's abnormal, can they be ruled in for a heart attack immediately? Yes. But if it's normal, can you say, okay, they're fine? No, what do you got to do? You got to draw the enzymes. Now, even if the ECG is positive, they're still going to draw enzymes, but you can call it a heart attack immediately. But if they're normal, There's no way to know for sure until the enzymes come back negative.